Welcome to the Normal Christian Life Podcast with Pastor Stephen Samuel. As you listen, we know that you will be encouraged and challenged to follow the normal Christian life that Jesus offers to us. We would love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life, so please visit us online at icathedral.org. You can also find useful information about our church and other resources that will help you grow in your journey with Christ. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. So, the recap of Ephesians, Paul is writing to a mature church that has had a global impact, that has had a global impact, the simple truths that have led to the literal transformation of the world. Um, He establishes our predetermined purpose, uh, our predetermined purpose, which is God's will for our lives, uh, Ephesians 1.4, and then he establishes the love that we have been shown, and he defines the wisdom of God in assuring our salvation from a corrupt and perverse system of carnal living. We talked a little bit about that, just the, the, the Greek perversion, the perversion of sexuality among the Greeks, among the Romans, and how we are called to a higher, not higher in the, um, like we're proud, pride, prideful or whatever, but higher in the sense of following the Lord Jesus, the, the motive of our heart is purer than those that are self-seeking, right? And he talks about that. And then he goes on in number two here, he says, and then he prays for the church. And we talked about that prayer, Ephesians chapter two, verses 16 to 23. And then he focuses on who we are as a result of God's love for his son. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, he says, and now you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive together with Christ. Now, this is one of those fundamental doctrines in in Christian faith called immediate sanctification, right? Sounds really big. It just means the moment you believe, you're perfect. Immediate sanctification. For the longest time, up until the Wesleyan revivals, that doctrine was not fundamental in the church. It was solely progressive salvation. You didn't even know you were saved, right, until the church agreed that you were saved, Think about that for a little bit, right? You, didn't, you had no assurance of your salvation. It was either you're predetermined in salvation or you're not predetermined. And we don't know because we're still determining whether you are or not, right? I'm joking, but that's really the reality that, was, uh, that happened. And so this people group, uh, or this belief system of the Mennonites was conveyed to John Wesley, Charles Wesley, John Wesley primarily. And then in the first great awakening, the big great awakening was Salvation comes, immediate sanctification comes by grace through faith. You believe and you're immediately atoned, right? And then they didn't throw away the progressive sanctification. That's also part of the faith, but it was not one or the other. It was both, right? You remember that hymn uh, Charles Wesley wrote? There's a lyric in there. He says, um, talking about Jesus, be for sin, a double cure, free from wrath. And I forgot the rest, (laughs) The double cure was this, you're immediately sanctified and you're progressively sanctified. Your sin, you're free from the immediate penalty of sin right away, right? Set free by the blood of Jesus because you're immediately made perfect, but then you're progressively set free from the power and the nature of sin. What makes the progression accelerate or decelerate? Simply what you believe. The more you believe you're free from sin, the more free you'll be. The more you believe you're bound to sin, you're bound right? And so it's not an issue of God doling out uh, redemption points or doling out salvation points. It's how fast can you believe that will move you into the reality of who you are in Christ, right? And does that take time? Absolutely. Our brain can only go so fast, right? You go from 
sinner to saint overnight, literally in fractions of a second, but it takes a whole lifetime to realize what we have in Christ, right? There's not really a good analogical reference to that because nothing in the world works like that, right? There's no immediate transformation that takes such a long time to really perceive, right? You and I, we are brought into the kingdom immediately saved from sin, the nature of sin, the power of sin, immediate. But how that works out in us takes time. That's why Paul would later say in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. God is working in us to do what? What he wants, working through us, his will and to do his good pleasure. Okay, and then Paul goes on here and he says, we were bound in the broken paradigm of self-worship and self-seeking destruction, Ephesians 2, verses two to three. And then he talks about how to respond to this brokenness, God out of his own nature redeemed us. Listen, God didn't save us because he needs us. God saves us because he's a saving God. And that's a huge difference because if God's motivation for redeeming mankind was a need, then the moment the need is met, man no longer has a purpose. But his purpose is in himself. God loves because he can do nothing else but love, right? And because his nature is love, he will always love. How we translate that love into our paradigm determines how much we believe in his love or not. If we don't believe he loves us, even when he loves us, we will interpret that as judgment, right? There's a great uh, um, description of that concept in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You ever get to read that? That's an epic, epic book. But there's a part where Uncle Andrew, who's like the bad uncle, you know, who get, tricks the kids and go into Narnia with the rings that he makes up. I'm sorry, it's not that book. It's the book before it, The Magician's Nephew, right? And so they go into Narnia. I know y'all are like, what in the world? They go into Narnia, and they're there, and they appear in the world between worlds, and there's nothing there. It's just empty space, whatever. And they see Aslan coming over the uncreated horizon or whatever. And Aslan, who represents Jesus, is coming. And he's roaring. And as he's roaring, the world's being created, right? And as he's there, the kids are just in amazement. And they're in awe. And Uncle Andrew, who tricked them into getting into this world, is kind of afraid. Not kind of. He's very terrified. In fact, he doesn't like Aslan because... Aslan's messing up his little show, right? He wants to be a great magician. And so the closer the lion gets, the kids, they respond wanting to know him, and the uncle responds wanting to run from him. And Aslan speaks to the children and says, how did you get in here, and how did you so quickly bring sin into my world, right? And the kids are like, he did it, (laughs) right? He did it. And really, Diggory, the, the little kid, he played along with the game, and so Aslan confronts him. And then as the lion is talking, and this is what I'm getting to, as the lion is talking, the more that they want to understand, the more they understand what he's saying. But Uncle Andrew doesn't want to understand, so to him, it's just the roaring of a lion. And that's the way it is with God many times. The closer you want to get to him, the more you understand him. But the more offenses you have in your heart, the more shrewd he feels to you, Right? The scripture says it like this. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the shrewd, everything is unjust. And so our perception of God determines our relationship with him, right? It's like that in every relationship. You ever thought somebody was angry with you and then all of a sudden there's tension in the relationship 
It's a thought that came into your mind. You begin to feed it, and then all of a sudden, it manifested. They might not have been angry with you the whole time, but now you're angry with them. They don't know why you're angry with them. You don't know why they're angry with you, and then all of a sudden, guess what? Your perception created a reality, right? And I know there's limits to that logic, but in relationship, it's very true, right? Okay, and so Paul goes on. He says, God responds to us out of his nature and redeems us. Paul calls, recalls the distance that the Gentiles were from the truth of salvation, but now they've been brought near to salvation by Jesus. And that's in chapter two, verses 11 through 13, where he says, listen, you have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus, okay? And then he says, from this place of authority, I'm sorry, number four, Paul then moves to discuss his role in proclaiming the good news of redemption and the hope for the non-Jews. And then he gives us the second prayer that he prays over the Gentile church. And then from this place of authority, he charges every believer to walk worthy or live worthy of the calling we have. Then he discusses those who have been given to the church to empower us to walk worthy. And that's where we get the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers. Listen, I know we're in a charismatic church, so we've got to be treading on thin, thin, thin lines here. But if we take the context of what he's writing here about the fivefold ministry out of context and we begin to see this as a hierarchy in the church, you lose the purpose of why the fivefold is there. Just this week, I mean, like in the last seven days, I've had discussions with, with young men, young women who feel, man, I'm a prophet. Man, I'm a pastor. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to start a church and blah, blah, blah. And that all sounds nice and dandy. But the, the title that people many times invoke to immediately assume authority is not the titles given here. These titles are given or roles are given to bring unity to the church, not the promotion of an individual ministry. They're brought to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, right? And I, and I say that in passing as we go through this because the context is so important because when people begin to promote themselves as prophets, pastors, apostles, teachers, and you see a very divisive platform, it's contrary to the very nature of what these roles are supposed to do, right? Right? Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers are to bring the church together, not pull it apart, right? And especially in our charismatic age now, these roles have kind of shifted where people begin to draw men to themselves based on a gifting, based on a title, based on literally power. I mean, it's not fake power, it's literal power, but they're misusing their gifting, calling, anointing, whatever you want to call it, to serve themselves. Is that possibility? Is that, will God still allow them to have the authority that they have or the anointing? Yeah, he doesn't pull the anointing back. But know that we're responsible for what we do with that, right? Always wonder, well, God, why don't you just pull the anointing off of them? Because God is in it for the long haul, right? He's in it to see if eventually they will yield to his voice with the gifting, I was talking to a young man the other day. I said, it doesn't seem fair because a lot of times God will go to somebody and put a gift in them and then tell them to sit on it for 10 years. And then you're like, what do I do with this? <laughs> you know, Why can't I just start the ministry right now? Because he's testing your character. If the character will destroy your gifting or your gifting will build your character, right? And listen, guys that do it right, men and women who do it right, even though they have a gift, they find themselves being discipled to establish character so that the anointing doesn't destroy them. And listen, we've all seen it where the anointing destroys somebody's life. They get proud, they get arrogant, they get whatever, and they begin to serve themselves. 
with the anointing that God gives them. And everyone will eventually give account one day for what they've done with the giftings that God's given them. But in context, all these roles, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, is there to do what? To bring unity to the body, right? Okay, keep going. Then he discusses those who have been given the church, I'm sorry, point B. He details the evidences of what it means to walk in the spirit. And he kind of hits this really briefly, like this is what it means to walk in the spirit, right? And the big flagship characteristic is what? Love, be imitators of God, imitate Christ just as I am. And he says what? We're to love one another. And then we put away pride, arrogance, anger, perversion, sexual perversions. And he goes into malice, fits of rage, wrath, those kind of things. He's saying, this is the, not the do all these things, don't do all these things, but this is the evidences of when you're walking in the spirit, you're falling in love with Jesus, these things are gonna come out of your life, right? Okay, jump to the next page here. The new identi- this new identity of who we are in him is manifest, and this is where it gets the rubber meets the road. This new identity we have in Christ is manifest where? In our relationships, right? Say, so it all sounded nice and dandy, but then I start thinking of people in my life and we got a problem, <laughs> right? Because it's easy to be loving to Jesus, but just not everybody else, right? But that's where it matters the most, right? He says there in a, well, in, as he moves through it, he talks about relationships of husbands and wives, childrens to parents, employees to employers, right? And he goes through these various relationships, not that they're uh, a catch-all for every relationship, but they're the, the fundamental relationships that a lot of people have, right? Family relationships, marital relationships, uh, children, parents, those kind of things. And as he goes through these relationships, he says, the essence of this identity, our identity, is gained and maintained in the way that we manage our thought life. And then he shifts from relationships here to relationships in here, right? Our thought life. And he goes into that passage where he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, wicked things in high places. And he's, in essence, not completely talking about the angelic demonic world. He's talking about systems of thinking, ways of thinking that rule our imagination. Now, I'll give you this, give you this little thing and we'll move on. It's so easy to blame the devil. It really is. When somebody gets angry with you, a boss gets angry with you, a coworker, a friend, a family, it's so easy to blame the devil. To blame a demon, I mean, it's easy. I've done it. I've been guilty. I should get a t-shirt for it, right? <laughs> blame the demons, <laughs> right? But here's what happens when we do that. It changes nothing. It really changes nothing. Am I saying that there's not a demonic world? There is. Am I saying that those demonic things don't influence our thinking? They do. But responsibility falls on our shoulders, right? Even if we're wrestling with principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, wicked things in high places, how we wrestle with them is not by blaming them. It's by taking charge of our thinking. And that's what Paul is saying. He's not saying they don't exist, but the way we fight is in how we believe. Because the power of what we believe and then it comes out of our mouth and our words changes the dynamics of what those spiritual forces can and can't do to you, the relationships that you have, right? Charismatics get really, and I'm one of them, 
really extreme on, well, that's the spirit of, and you can just fill in the blank, spirit of donuts, spirit of hot sauce, that's the spirit of, you know, well, that's, and you, I mean, like, really, we can call everything a spirit that we don't like. The truth is, in the scriptures, there's only about 16 actual spirits named in the negative connotation, right? Only about 16. Spirit of fear, the spirit of Jezebel, I mean, 16, that's it. And we've got thousands, <laughs> right? But really, when we say that, even if we look at our, our, our vocabulary, when we say that, what we're really saying is their pattern of behavior identifies with this specific person or characteristics that I don't like, right? The spirit of gluttony, you know, that's a fun one, the glutton spirit. Well, that's not really a spirit in the Bible, right? But what it is, it's a pattern of behavior. Someone, and I'll pick that one because I think we all have it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's a pattern of behavior of what? No self-control, right? And now it's costing maybe physical problems or spiritual problems or whatever. But it's not really a spirit. It's someone that hasn't taken control of their, or bringing their mind to the lordship of Jesus when it comes to something as simple as food, which really isn't very simple. It's very hard, Right? But in every area of our life, guess what? We have to bring our thinking to the obedience of Christ in every area. Say, well, Stephen, are you sure God really cares about what I eat? He wrote a whole book about it, right? Leviticus. Like he took time to tell them what to eat because he really cared about it, their health. And he said, if you'll just listen to what I tell you, it's not a moral law any longer, but it's still a good law to follow sometimes, right? Now, of course, in the New Testament, it's not so much eat this, don't eat this. It's just be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's voice, right? And we can talk about this forever, about food. But listen, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can eat like a crazy person. You still have to take care of your body, right? Well, I just go get prayed for. I understand, but healing sometimes is a lifestyle, not a Band-Aid, right? I know I just stepped on some toes there, but it's true. Listen, there's been times I've sat down to eat and the Holy Spirit's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, well, nothing really. It's their appetizer. <laughs> Why? Because he wants me to be healthy, right? But if it's, if it's in simple things like eating, man, sometimes it's in things like resting. It's in things like who you talk to, how you spend your time, what you entertain yourself with. Well, Stephen, it sounds like God wants to control everything. No, that's not the issue. He wants to be involved in everything. Right? He wants to be involved in everything because he's a lover and he wants to be with you all the time. And when you see it from that perspective, he wants to be with us all the time and he only is going to do those things with us that are for our benefit. It's not about him alone. It's not about just his desires. It's about the relationship he wants to hold with us. Right? Okay. Um, Paul quickly defines this, how this relationship should look. The essence of this identity is gained and maintained in the way we manage our thought life. And that's where I'm going to skip over here to um, Ephesians chapter 6. And we've read this a number of times, so I won't hit it, read it again. But when he talks about taking up the armor, and we hit this uh, a little bit at the end of last, last week, where he says in verses six, uh, chapter 6, verse 13, and verse 16, he says the word take there, which is, I can't say it in the Greek, anna, whatever. It means to lift up or to take, one, take to oneself. 
literally means you instigate the dialogue in your mind of truth, righteousness, and the gospel of peace and faith, which is also the gift of the Spirit. He's saying, when he says, take up these things, and he says the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and take up the shield of faith. He's saying, take these things. Where do we take them? Into our thinking. Like, we pick those things up. Like, we identify with, I'm righteous. Identify with, I have the gospel of peace. You identify with the faith that God's given us, right? We take those things up. And then he changes the word in the last part, and he says this in verse, in chapter 6, verse 17. The Greek word there is, yeah, that word there, dexa, sethe, or whatever, literally means to receive into your mind. And so what he's speaking of in the context of the armor of God is the conversation that you have and the conversation that you let in. The conversation you have is the righteousness you have in Christ. The conversation you have is the faith that God has put in your heart, right? The gospel of peace that you carry and discuss everywhere you go. Those are the conversations that you instigate. But then he says, let these conversations or take in, it's a change of the word, take in the what? Helmet of or the covering of salvation and take in the word of God. And so this whole uh, apparatus of the armor is really addressing the dialogue in your head, what you put out and what you take in, right? And then he says, take in the word of God, which we talked about like that. I talked about that last, last week. Literally means receiving, and these are two elements, salvation and the word of God. Salvation and the word of God. <laughs> the hardest thing to get people to believe in the Christian faith is how final the finality of their salvation the assurance of who they are in Christ, that immediate sanctification doctrine. Because for many, 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 many years, at least in my little 41 years of living, I've been taught you're saved by grace, but you maintain your salvation by good works. Nobody will ever say that, but we imply it very clearly, right? If you're saved, you will fill in the blank, do this, not do this. And what are we really saying? Salvation is maintained by good behavior. And the doctrine of the gospel is salvation is maintained by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. That's Ephesians chapter 2, right? I don't have to strive to do good when I begin to believe that I am good. Not because of who I am, but because of who? Christ in me, the hope of glory. But so many times we can fall into the legalistic mindset. And the reason it's such an issue, and it was an issue in the early church, is because you had the Jews who maintained salvation by behavior and the Gentiles who acquired salvation by faith smashed together and this hybrid gospel came out, right? So you're saved by grace, maintained by behavior, right? And that's not the gospel. Because the old covenant was maintaining salvation by behavior, sacrifices, that's the, from Moses until Malachi, that's the gospel, that's the message of salvation, right? Some things had to be done to atone for sin nature, but sin nature was never changed. And the gospel is, it is changed. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, he changes your desire from sin nature to God's nature. You desire to love the Father. The only people that are the people that are born again and yet go back to their old way of thinking is when they believe a lie. They believe that this sin will somehow give them something 
that Jesus can't, right? They believe, that's what it says in the, the, as Peter is finishing up. He says, brethren, as in, in 1 Peter, is it 1 Peter, the end of 1 Peter? He says, don't entertain your fleshly desires because they will rage war within your soul, right? It'll cause a conflicting of, this is what I thought I liked, but this is not who I am. And who you are, in essence, is supposed to guide what you do, right? Who I am as a person, what I believe I am in Christ should direct what I behave like in the world. But if my belief is faulty, I don't really believe that I'm righteous before God, then I'll always be trying to get righteous because in my heart, I don't believe I'm righteous. But the moment I begin to establish that thinking, I am righteous, I cannot help it. I'm righteous. I don't have to tell myself to be righteous. I am righteous. I don't have to tell myself to not sin. I, by the nature of God, just live righteously. Dangerous quote, which doesn't get quoted a lot. Martin Luther, as he was coming on to this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and the doctrine of immediate sanctification, in one of his little pamphlets, he says, once the grace of God takes hold of your heart, you can sin all you want and you will never be let go. In fact, he says, fight it with everything you have and you'll find he's stronger. We don't tell people that because we're afraid they're gonna go out there and try, right? But here's the truth. You can fight it all you want. You're never gonna be happy living like a sinner when you're born again. Now, is there this line where you could sear your conscience? I think it's out there because Paul speaks of it where you go so far to try to remove the spirit of grace from your life. But listen, you have to work at that. You really have to work at that. I mean, talking about years of working at undermining the spirit of grace. And listen, I bet maybe one person in my life who I think was kind of on that place, and they were very adamant about it. One in my whole life. Because deep in our heart, even in our seasons of rebellion, there's the tug of the spirit that we're like, yeah, I'm going to get back over there <laughs> eventually. <laughs> like, I'm going back over there eventually, right? And God in his wisdom, it's like the prodigal son, right? He was still a son when he was in the pig's pen. He was. In fact, Jesus even gives a little bitty detail in that parable. He says, and he went, the prodigal, and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And the word joined himself, it literally has a sexual connotation. And yet, he was a son. Because his label never changed from son to servant or outcast. So as he was joining himself to the citizen of another country, what happened? He said to himself, inside that voice said, you're a son. (laughs) You can go back to the father's house. And he tried to lie to himself. Well, I'll be a servant, right? But when he gets back, what's the reality? He's a son, right? That's how powerful the finality of Christ's redemption is. We think one sin is going to undermine our salvation. And Christ died so that no sin would ever undermine the salvation that he presents to the world. That's how powerful his ability is. In the book of Hebrews, he says it like this. If the blood of bulls and goats could atone for sin for a year, how much more or a better covenant do we have that the blood of Jesus atones for 
all humanity, for all mankind, for all time. Now you think about the blood of bulls and goats. We think, or maybe we default, by default think, well, what they did is they sinned a whole year and then they went and got an animal and they killed it and the blood atoned for the sins of the year past. But that's not the case. It was for the year to come. The sacrifices were always for the year to come because they didn't know what would happen, right? And so the blood of an animal atoned for sins in the year to come. So they would be redeemed in the year ahead. How much more the blood of Jesus atoned for all sins for all mankind, both ways on the timeline, right? He atoned for all those who believed before him and all those who believe after his ascension and resurrection. Do you think my one sin can undo that power? No, because then, it's not, then I realize it's not about a sin issue, it's about a transformation issue. So when I'm transformed, the spirit of God comes inside of me, I become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Literally the Greek word is species, a new species in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. You know what the next verse says? It doesn't say, unless you sin. That's the period at the end of that statement. All things are made new. So you're brought into this place of redemption in Christ. But when you put your faith in him, how much faith? A little bit of faith is all it takes. We believe on him that he is who he says he is. And he did what he said he did. The moment we believe, then all of a sudden, Holy Spirit begins to come into us, and he begins to open our thinking to who he is and who we are. And the reality of who we are in him, we have a choice, again, to believe this is who I am or not believe, right? And that's the passage in Hebrews where he says that the children of Israel showed us an example of how long unbelief could keep you in a place of not entering to the rest. What is the rest? The assurance that we're his. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at icathedral.org or on social media via Instagram and Facebook, or most easily by downloading our app, Cathedral Church, in the app store of your choice. Until next time, keep living that not-so-normal Christian life. God bless you.